we believe that this book actually is God's inspired word to us. Um, and so we want to, in essence, hold a microphone up to God and let him speak to us. Now, and so we continue our study then in that this morning. We'll be in chapter 6. We're nearing the end of this letter. Chapter 6 will be in verses uh, 3 through 10. The chapter 6, verses 3 through 10, as Shannon read just a moment ago. Now, if you've, if you've um, been raised in the church, had any experience within the church, uh, then you've heard those famous Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments from the Old Testament, and more than likely if you've heard them, you've probably heard them in the Old King James. And the one in particular I want to highlight as we begin here this morning is the Tenth Commandment, Thou shalt not covet. Again, the King James says so uh, eloquently and um, so difficult to understand, thou shalt not covet. More modern English, you shall not covet. What does it mean to covet? And why in the world will we begin studying 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 10, talking about coveting or covetousness is a word we'll use a lot today. Because I think that Timothy here is receiving this letter from Paul as a young pastor in Ephesus because he's dealing with covetousness that's run rampant within his church. And Paul's writing to him to help him make sure that he doesn't believe a false teaching that's going around about it, but instead gives him the truth of how we as Christians are to be able to battle covetousness then in our lives. So the, the um, outline for today is just three points. The lie of covetousness. The lie of covetousness. Second, the danger of covetousness. And then third, the cure to covetousness. I can tell, I, listen, I don't know if it covetousness, covetousness, I don't know. We're just going to run with it. It's something like that. So covetousness, covetousness, the lie, the danger, and the cure. We'll just do that instead of saying covetousness like 84 times this sermon. The, the lie, the danger, and the cure. This is what Paul's writing to Timothy about. We're going to go a little bit out of order today. I want to begin looking at verses 3 and 5. We'll see the lie. But then I want to jump to the end of this section and look at verses 9 through 10 to see the danger. And then we'll come back to verses 6 through 8 to see the cure. So first, Paul begins here in writing to Timothy. And he's writing a lot. Again, if you've been with us before, Timothy, Paul's very concerned about false teaching. He mentions false teachers in chapter 1, discusses some of the false teaching happening in chapter 4, and here he comes back to it. He's very concerned to make sure that the false teaching is identified and that sound teaching or sound doctrine prevails. So this is what he begins with. Teach and encourage these things, Timothy. Listen, if anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes Godliness. Paul begins here by noting the nature of sound teaching, what it looks like, what distinguishes it from false teaching. So this is the nature of, of sound teaching, Timothy. Look, it comes from our Lord Jesus Christ and it promotes godliness. That's the nature of sound teaching. It comes from Jesus and it looks like Jesus. You can tell by its fruit. It will produce a Christ-like fruit that promotes godliness. And it originates from Jesus and from his spirit. That is sound teaching and the nature of sound teaching. And he's making sure to correct anyone who is teaching false doctrine. So then in verse 4 he shifts and says the nature then of 
false teaching, well, if the nature of sound teaching is it comes from Jesus and looks like Jesus, he says, this then, Timothy, is the nature of false teaching. Those who teach false doctrine are conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among peoples whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth. And so he writes here and says, this is the nature of false teaching. One, they are arrogant. They're conceited. Walk around puffed up like they know everything. Not only are they arrogant, but they're also ignorant. You see that in verse 4? Paul says they are conceited and understand nothing. Paul mentions no words here. Paul says they are arrogant and they are ignorant. I love one translation of the Bible um, says that they are pompous ignoramus. That's who these false teachers are. They walk around full of hot air, acting like they know everything, and they don't know anything. What's the fruit then of their teaching? Well, they have this unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. So they kind of thrive in those situations in which people are arguing. They like to plant seeds that get people turned against one another. And they have an unhealthy interest in those disputes and in the arguments over words. They're drawn into discord. It seems like they thrive over disagreement. And so they are divisive. They're not only arrogant and ignorant, but they're also divisive. They have this unhealthy interest towards it. That's who the teachers are. And then look at what this teaching produces. Envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreements. If sound teaching produces people that look like Jesus... False teaching produces people that look nothing like Jesus. Envy, desiring things that others have. Quarreling, fighting with one another. Slander, saying things about others that you would never say behind their back, you would never say to their face. Things that are not true. Evil suspicions, beginning with the assumption that someone is doing something wrong. The Bible tells us we should believe all things. Our first step is to believe the best in others. Not to assume the worst. Not to come kind of with the eyebrows raised going, oh, I bet they're doing the worst possible thing I can imagine. Evil suspicions. Goodness, is that not the way that many of us respond? When we see a post or see someone do something, we automatically jump to the worst possible conclusion, assign that motive, and then begin to feel a certain way to that person based off of that assumption or evil suspicion that we have, not knowing really if that was ever the case, rather than believing the best. And so Paul says this is one of the things that happens, evil suspicions, and all that produces constant disagreements. And disagreements among people whose mind are both depraved and deprived of the truth. There's a twisting of the truth and the depravity, but also deprived of truth because they're hearing false doctrine that's being taught. And so this is the nature then of false teaching. Paul then gets to, now in verse 5, the specific false teaching that he wants to address, the specific false doctrine. So again, if this is the lie, you may say, well, we haven't talked about coveting at all. So what in the world? Well, Paul's going to get to it now. So he's kind of getting this broad view of sound teaching and false teaching. Now he's going to hone in on verse 5 and say, Timothy, here's the thing that we've got to address. Here's the false doctrine that's running around the church in Ephesus. Because Ephesus was a very affluent community. A very affluent city. Uh, there was a lot of money that was there. A lot of prestige was given to what you had, what you wore, what you owned. 
And so you can begin to see why this false teaching would sink its teeth into this church. In verse 5, Paul shows us the specific lie that covetousness has told them. Verse 5, the constant disagreements, constant disagreements among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth. Well, what's the thing that's being taught? What's well, those who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain? So there it is. It's the lie that was beginning to take root in the church in Ephesus. Godliness is a way to material gain. Some of your translations may not have that word material. Uh, some of your translations may have the word financial. But that idea of gain is one of material. It's one of stuff. One of either money or stuff that money can buy. And here was the lie that was being sold in Ephesus. These teachers were getting up and saying, hey, listen, if you act a certain way, if you live a certain kind of godly life, believing in God, trusting in Him, having enough faith, then you can have all the things that your hearts have desired. Money, finances, material, these things. You can just go out, you can name it, and you can claim it. Doesn't matter what it is, you go out and you can have it because godliness, how you live and how godly you are, will lead you into material and financial gain. Now, you can hear, you don't have to make much of a jump to some of the teaching that you may have heard on television today. It's what's known often and billed as the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel. It finds its root in the word of faith churches. If you are from that or heard of that, that's central to this teaching. If you believe and have enough faith, God will make you healthy and God will make you wealthy. Because that's what he wants for you. He wants you to have money. He wants you to not be sick. And so if you're sick, the problem is either you don't have enough faith or there's some unconfessed sin in your life because godliness leads to gain. Always. The problem is you. And so if you're struggling with cancer, you don't have enough faith. And so there are these rallies that these teachers will put on. And people will come with disease and heartache and they will come hoping to be able to be freed from it because that's central to the message. But yet those that are really in need are kept from being able to go up and experience healing. Why? Because this garbage doesn't work. It's not true. It is a lie from the pit of hell that manipulates those who are in desperate need and who are suffering. And they come with this message that says, hey, if you would just believe a little bit more or send me some money, then God will send you even more. If you've ever been late at night watching TBN or some of these other guys are like, hey, send me $100, plant the seed of faith, and God will then give you back tenfold. They'll tell some story about somebody who did it, and the next day they went to their um, mailbox, and there was a check that paid for the rest of their house. And you can too if you just send me your money. Goodness, this, it is just garbage. I, still, I say I'm going to do this. I still haven't done it. But I want to call every one of those ministries and say, listen, if you need money, I've got a great idea. Send our church $100,000 and then God will give you a million. It's simple. I got a feeling none of them will take me up on it. Why? Because they don't really believe it. They're around flying private jets, wearing expensive clothes, and profiting off those who are in need. Peddling this message that godliness is a way to material gain. And Paul is saying these false teachers were touching that same craving that the Ephesians had to want to be rich. And they told them that they had the means to help them get there. If you just believe enough, just act a certain way, 
then you can have what you always want. And godliness and God himself becomes like a genie in a bottle that we go to when we want something that we think he can give us. And if he can't, we leave him alone. And if so, then we are satisfied. At the end of the day, though, that is really not a love of God. It is a love of self in which God becomes a means and a tool for us to have what we want. So that's the lie that's taken root in Ephesus. Godliness is a means to financial material gain. Well, what's the danger then? That's the lie of covetousness. What's the danger of covetousness? So we want to skip down to verse 9 now. So Paul says now, here's the problem. Here's the danger of wanting to be rich. This was the false teaching. It was preying on people that wanted to be rich. So Paul's now addressing the crowd. So first the false teachers, now the crowd. People that want to be rich. Those that are coveting. He said, listen, those who want to be rich, they fall into temptation. They fall into a trap. And they fall into many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. One thing I want to highlight before we jump into these two passages, these two verses, is you may have heard something like this. Again, if you've been in the church or even just uh, in culture, there's this phrase that money is the root of all evil. Maybe you've heard that. Well, that is a misquote from the Bible. Again, look at what the text says. The text doesn't say that money is the root of all evil, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So Paul isn't saying, I've determined the root of every evil and every sin in the world. It's money. Not only is he not saying that, but he's also not saying that the love of money is the root of every kind of evil. Pride, selfishness, these are roots of tons of evil within the world. But Paul is saying, here's one in particular, this love of money, not money itself. Money isn't evil. It's what our hearts are inclined to think and hope about money that's evil. We'll see later in a couple weeks, Paul's going to talk to those that have a lot of money. At the end of this chapter, he's going to talk to those who are wealthy and show us that as Christians, we don't think money is evil, that we should just live in abject poverty because it's evil, but there is actually a way to live properly with money because it's not about money. It's not wrong to have stuff, it's just wrong for stuff to have us. And so here Paul is saying that that love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Right, even last week as we saw Paul addressing slavery in first century Ephesus, we talked some about the American slave trade, African slave trade, and American chattel slavery. Friends, do you know what drove that entire institution? It's, it may be oversimplistic, but it's the best summary I can see of it. There were people who were beginning to develop crops in the new world. They didn't have anybody to go and work them. And they realized if we can go and steal a group of people, kidnap them from their families, tell them that they are less than human, own them, abuse them, and uh, sometimes kill them, and make them work for free, boy, we'll make a lot greater profit. And what drove the entire institution was the love of money. And so we see the danger that it has here. But again, you may ask the question, well, Caleb, you're talking a lot about coveting, but I don't see the word covet anywhere in here. Well, I want to go back again to Exodus 20, verse 17, to that 10th commandment. I want to read it in its entirety so we can see what the nature of coveting is. And while Paul doesn't address it, I think he's directly talking about it. Exodus 20, verse 17 says this, the 10th commandment, do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or 
anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Now, this, this commandment is expanded longer than the others. There's a number of kind of different clauses within it. Paul says, when you look to your neighbor, don't desire, don't covet his house, his wife, his male or female servants, his ox or his donkey, or just in case I miss anything, anything else that belongs to him. Don't covet that. And notice the nature of this. It's all stuff. It's material. It's possessions. It's earthly. It's, it's this desire to look at others and go, I want that because either I don't have it or because I want more of it. That's the heart of coveting. And now we come back to our passage in 1 Timothy 6 and we see it was the same thing for those in Ephesus. Particularly with money desiring either what they didn't have or that they wanted more of it. And here come these false teachers saying, hey, if that's what you want, let me then help prop up your sin and tell you the way to get it. It's through godliness. And Paul says, no, don't believe the lie because there's incredible danger in living that kind of life. Constantly looking around and going, I want that. I don't have that. I want more of that. Boy, their Instagram feed just looks so much better than mine. I want what they have. And so we begin to see coveting goes far beyond just money, but also into everything that money may buy and to everything that's in this world. Coveting is a posture of our hearts that's longing to try to find satisfaction and contentment in things in this world, being unsatisfied with what we have, thinking we need more of it, or what we don't have. To covet is to want what you don't have or what you believe you don't have enough of, and believing that obtaining it would make you happy, satisfy you, and finally bring contentment into your life. That's the heart of coveting. And the reason why covetousness is so powerful is because it hones in on our hearts. It hones in and manipulates what we love. Right, listen again to these words in verses 9 and 10. Look back at 9 and 10. Listen to these four words. Want, desires, love, and craving. That's at the heart of coveting. Want, desires, love, craving. It deals with our hearts what we're longing for, what we love, what we are uh, yearning for, what it is that we want. And covetousness locates our hope. It sets our hope in things that we don't have or in more of what we already have and then drives us to do whatever we need to do in order to get it. That's the temptation of covetousness and the trap that it sets. That's the language that Paul uses. This is what it is. That kind of desire, that kind of longing is a temptation and it's a trap. And covetousness sets a compelling trap. Friends, it's part of the nature of what a trap is. You're not supposed to see it and you're supposed to want to go into it. That's the whole point of it. It's not supposed to be obvious. It's not supposed to be walking through life and going, oh, that's obviously like from Satan, going to avoid that. We're walking through life and there's part of us that is drawn towards it. We can't see what's around it, right? My nephew is um, 11 years old, and he's always been an outdoorsman, loves to hunt, loves to tie knots, loves just anything outdoorsy. His most recent expedition is getting into the trapping business. 
they live out in Mississippi, uh, and they've got a number of raccoons around their house. I don't know why that matters there in Mississippi. I guess uh, if you've been to Mississippi, maybe you just think it's like just critters everywhere. I don't know why. There's raccoons around here. We have coyotes like in our backyard. Anyway, running on a tangent, back to my nephew. He lives in Mississippi. They've got raccoons around their house. So his solution, I'm going to get in the trapping business. He goes, he buys traps. He's already trapped two raccoons from around his house. But again, when you're setting up a trap, when my nephew's setting up a trap, he's not trying to make it obvious and make it unappealing to the raccoons. Hey, don't come here. I want to catch as many of you as possible. That's a bad way to think about trapping. When you set a trap, you want to hide it. You want to cover it with natural foliage. Make it look like it's a part of nature. And inside of it, you want to put something there that what you're trying to catch would want. All right, raccoons are drawn to things that are shiny, put a shiny metal object in there, maybe some food that it loves. So when it's walking by, all of a sudden it smells fresh peanut butter. Oh, I've never wanted peanut butter as much as I do right now, that raccoon thinks. And he looks, and there it is. And he sees, it's just right there by a tree, it's under a bush, nothing wrong with it. It just happens to be peanut butter growing out here in the wild, very logical. Wanders over, and when he goes there, the trap falls, he's caught, and he plunges into ruin and destruction. Friends, we need to understand our enemy is setting traps and temptations. And the love of money in particular and covetousness is dangerous because it can sometimes be so hard to see. It's the nature of what a trap is. And so what we see is that coveting actually expands beyond just money. But anything in this world that we are longing for, setting our hope on, and desiring to satisfy our hearts. This goes beyond just money. And it gets into then our very hearts. Whatever it is, we've said this before, wherever, however you would fill in this blank is what it is you're coveting and ultimately making an idol in your life. If you, how would you finish this sentence? If I just had blank, then I would be happy. And whatever you put in that blank is what your heart covets, longs for, and believes will bring you happiness, satisfaction, and ultimate joy and contentment. And you may say, well, I don't, I don't really know if I'm coveting or not. But here's one barometer to be able to tell the nature of our hearts. is how we feel when someone else gets what it is we want. How do you feel and respond when someone else gets what it is that you want? Do you feel kind of rising inside of you? Man, why did they get that promotion instead of me? Why can they afford to live in that house in that neighborhood that I've always wanted to live in? How can they retire at that age and I can't? Whatever it might be, if there's a sense of envy and bitterness that rises up, friends, that's smoke telling us that in our hearts there is a covetous desire towards that thing. And that even if these people are Christians, we have kind of these negative feelings towards them because they have obtained what we believe would bring us satisfaction. And somehow they're getting it and we're not. And even underneath that, if we're honest, there may be times in those situations where we go, he got that promotion? He's like the worst individual that I know. 
I'm at least trying to be a Christian. This guy doesn't care anything about it. And he gets promoted. What's the deal, God? How much better could I do in that position for your kingdom than what he's doing? But you know what's underneath thoughts like that? Underneath thoughts like that is the belief that godliness leads to material and financial gain. God, I'm trying to live right. How come you're not giving me that? Friends, we sometimes don't see the trap that has been set. That's what's underneath all of them. I'm doing the best I can. I seem to be doing better than them. Why do they get what I wanted when they don't even say, care, seem to care about God at all? That's the danger of covetousness. It leads us in a perpetual sense of bitterness and dissatisfaction, and it plunges us into ruin and destruction as we then pierce ourselves with many griefs. You see that at the very end? Coveting and longing for things in this world, saying, I want what I don't have. I want more of what I already have. We are piercing ourselves with grief. You are making yourself miserable. And we feel that every time things in this world let us down. They may bring joy for a little while as we enjoy good gifts that God gives us. But friends, let me just tell you, nothing in this world can satisfy you for your entire life. Let me bring a little bit of relief but at some point, it will fail you. You may have the most incredible husband in the world, but there will be a point, probably later this afternoon, in which you will be very frustrated with him. <laughs> because he may make a great husband, but he makes a terrible God. And these things will always let us down. And we plunge ourselves into ruin and destruction and pierce ourselves with many griefs. And if we continue to run towards it in our entire life, setting our life, hope, and expectations and dreams on these things, friends, it may reveal that we've actually never come to know Jesus, and we may wander away from the faith. It's dangerous. We need to be aware of it. I think it's a certain blind spot that we have, especially in America. We're not much different than Ephesus. We talk about materialism, and it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, it's just it's a thing. Friends, I hope you see today, it's dangerous. The draw, the culture that we live in that's telling us if you just had the very next version of the iPhone, it's like a half a centimeter larger. So how could you live your life currently with a half a centimeter smaller phone? You can't. You've got to buy this. Then you can be happy. Think of the things that you can view on your screen with half a centimeter more. And friends, we buy into it. It sounds silly, but we understand we are living in the middle of a materialistic culture and we buy into it. And it not only then draws into our lives and how we view stuff, it seeps into the way that we even view church. Church becomes a consumer experience in which we're asking, what can you do for me? And the moment you stop providing those services for me, I'm out. And it changes the way in which we see the world. We become upset because our tiles have this kind or our countertops have this kind of surface and theirs have that kind. Oh, if I just had that kind of counter, then I could think of all the amazing things I could do in my kitchen. And we buy into that lie. And listen, I know there's a meme that's been going around and I know it's ridiculous, but I think it reveals part of this. We believe this to be true. It's this meme of Oprah. She's 64, like got her arms crossed, looking like super cool. And in the meme, it says, Oprah learns the secret to being stress-free at 64. Well, someone comments underneath that post. It's a screenshot, and that's what's being shared around. Somebody comments and says, step one, have a billion dollars. 
the secret to being stress-free at 64. And it's so like bizarre and nonsensical that it's funny. But again, what we are saying in the parts of it that go, yeah, if I just had a billion dollars, I'd be stress-free too. We believe that if we had more money, stress, worry, anxiety, it's gone. To us believing this to be true. Friends, it's dangerous. And we need to, it's easy for us to look back at Christians in the 16th, 17th, 18th century and go, how in the world could they own slaves? And it's right to ask the question. But there are blind spots in every culture that we're unaware of. Because I think our greatest one may be this in America. Materialism and in our draw to covet. Right? The whole point of a blind spot is you can't see it. When you're driving down the road, you check your mirror, and you start to pull over, and all of a sudden you hear someone laying on the horn. You see there was someone right beside you. Friends, I wonder if this morning God may be laying on the horn and saying, look at what you cannot see. Look at what your heart is longing for and coveting. And see the danger if you continue to run down that path. So that was the lie that took root in Ephesus. Godliness can lead to material gain. This is the danger of covetousness, that it leads us then into destruction, into ruin. It can never give us what it promises as we then pierce ourselves this entire life with being let down. So the question becomes, what is the cure? What's the cure of covetousness? That's what Paul gets to then in verses 6 through 8. As Paul then writes, look at verse 6, that godliness with contentment is great gain. There it is. That's the heart of this entire passage. I was talking to a friend last week. He put it this way. He said, that's the meat in the sandwich right there. Verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So two important words we've got to look at and stare at this morning. Godliness and contentment. They're two words that I think we need to stare at more often in our churches today. Godliness and contentment. Godliness, again, if you've been with us through 1 Timothy, you may have heard that word a lot. Paul's very concerned about godliness. This word in the Greek appears 15 times in the New Testament, this word godliness. Ten of those times in 1 Timothy. There's a heavy emphasis here in this first letter to Timothy to live a godly life. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's to live a life that is worthy of, of God's standard, to live a life that, as Paul puts in Philippians 1.27, living your life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that's a good kind of summary definition of what godliness is. Living your life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, that's quite a standard. But you see the way it's all-encompassing. It deals not only with externally what we're doing with our life, but it also deals with what we believe about God. It's all-encompassing, so much so that sometimes in this letter, it's substituted for the word gospel itself. Back in 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul wrote this, Most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. And what was the mystery of godliness? He was manifested in the spirit, manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. It's the gospel. It's the life and work of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And Paul refers to it as what? The mystery of godliness. 
And so we see that those words are almost used interchangeably by Paul. That's how big of a deal this idea is. So Paul is saying that if you draw towards, if your heart is drawn towards things in this world, the cure then for that is to then set your heart not on things in this world, but to set your heart on God himself and to live like him. To live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And one facet of godliness, as it's all-encompassing, Paul then highlights one facet of covetousness, or of godliness, that helps us fight covetousness. And that aspect of godliness is contentment. Also, this is, if you live a godly life, you'll live a contented life. But he highlights it here because it's a specific weapon that we have to fight against our, our heart's longing and desire to covet. The cure to covetousness is contentment. And definition of contentment is that we believe it's trusting God and all he does, despite what you may have, because having him is enough. Trusting God, saying, God, whatever you've brought into my life, I'll trust you. I know that you are good. I know that you're my father. Even in moments where I don't understand what's happening, I know that I can trust you. Despite what I may have, no matter how much or how little, because having him is enough. That's the heart and definition of contentment. All right, this is the secret that Paul learned in Philippians 4, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, I know how to make do with little. I know how to make do with a lot. Right, again, both situations. Discontentment isn't only for those that don't have anything. I can guarantee you there are billionaires around the world that are discontent. I know how to make do with a little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need. What's the secret, Paul? Philippians 4.13, I'm able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Listen, you see the context of that? Paul isn't talking about scoring a touchdown or benching 500 pounds. Right? I grew up in playing sports, and I just feel like that was always the application of this verse. You're getting ready to go get your personal best on squat, and right before you quote Philippians 4.13, right on your eye black underneath your eyes going into Friday night. It's like, I, that's not what Paul was talking about. Paul was talking about the secret of being content, that there is strength that he has in any and every circumstance as he's writing this letter from prison, Possibly facing his execution, Paul, in the middle of it all, is going, I'm content because I know that in Christ, I have strength that I can find in him. I know that he is with me. I know that he will not forsake me. I know that when I die, I will spend eternity with him. So there is nothing that this world can give me that Christ has not already given me. And there is nothing that this world can do to me that heaven will not cure. There is nothing. And that, friends, is the secret to being content. And it is the cure to covetousness. And sometimes it may take us losing everything to get to that point. It doesn't have to. But friends, if you walked in here feeling like you have nothing, I hope you feel and hear the incredible hope that maybe others might not be, have ears to hear. That Christ is all you need. That though it may feel like you've lost everything, friends, Christ offers you more. Corey Ten Boone was a Holocaust survivor, lived in a concentration camp, had some of her family killed 
And she put it this way. She said, you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Coy knew what Paul's teaching here to be true, especially in verse 7. Paul said, we brought nothing into this world and we take nothing out of it. Paul's like, it doesn't matter what you have right now. You ain't taking it with you into eternity. That's a famous illustration that a pastor used. You've never seen a U-Haul in the back of a hearse. Regarding our earthly possessions, our entry and exit from this world are identical. Got nothing on the way in, nothing on the way out. Job put it this way in Job 1.21. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will leave this life. So our brief lives here on earth are simply a brief pilgrimage between two points of nakedness. We brought nothing with us when we arrived. We aren't taking anything with us when we leave. I love this story I heard of an officiating minister at a funeral of a wealthy woman. Someone came up to the, to the minister and said, hey, how much did she leave? And he looked at her and he said, she left everything. Friends, honestly, it's a perspective that should inform how we live this life, where our contentment is found and influence how we spend our money. This stuff, money, cars, houses, any material possession that we have are things that we carry only in this life as we pilgrim to our true home. They fit into our carry-on suitcases of time, but they are not the stuff of eternity. So friends, we should aim to pack light. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, do not let your happiness depend on something that you may lose. I think Paul ramps that up even more here and phrases it even stronger by saying, don't let your happiness depend on something that you will lose, that you cannot take with you. So then even if we simply have food and clothes, we can be content. So why spend so much of our lives worrying and longing for things that we can't take with us? Friends, feel the freedom of contentment in Christ today. Again, to quote C.S. Lewis one more time, he put it this way. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. You see, there were these desires that the church in Ephesus had to want to be rich. And you may see that and go, well, they just, they had too strong of a desire and that's the problem that God is having to work with, that Paul is trying to deal with, that Timothy will have to pastor through. But Paul, notice what Paul says in response to the church in Ephesus. They thought that godliness was a way to material gain. And Paul does not say, hey, you shouldn't desire gain in your life. Right? The Christian life is about being miserable, not having any fun, not getting anything. Whenever you become a Christian, you leave all that behind. Paul doesn't say that. Sometimes Christianity gets caricatured that way. It's, it's the no fun zone. That's what you enter. Whenever you, you leave Dave and Buster's and you enter Christianity, no fun allowed here. That's what sometimes it can feel like. But Paul and Jesus and the message of the Bible says nothing about that. So Paul turns it on his head and says, hey, church in Ephesus, you think godliness leads to grain? Your problem is not that you desire money too strong, is that you don't desire the right thing enough. You can desire gain, but I've got an even greater gain for you. 
You desire money, but godliness with contentment is great gain. He's saying, here you are fooling about with money and stuff and material things, and I've got infinite joy that's offered to you, a deep and settled contentment that cannot be touched. Paul's telling them their problem is not that their desires are too great, but that they're too small. They long for gain, for happiness, for treasure. And Paul says, that's right. That's what you should be longing for. But you're desiring something that can't fill it. You're fooling with the mud pies of money and you've missed the infinite joy and contentment that's offered and found in Christ. Friends, Jesus is the great gift that God has given us to be able to enjoy forever and find contentment in him. The contentment that our souls have been longing for. God designed us in a way to long to find satisfaction. And you are so great of a creature that there's nothing in this world that can fill that except for God himself. Friends, we'll never find true contentment until we learn the same secret that Paul did. The greatest treasure that God has offered you is God himself through Jesus Christ. He is the great reward and he is the one that can satisfy you. He is our joy. And so then our song of contentment is that we say Christ is our hope in life and in death. On Christ, the solid rock, I will stand. Because all other ground is sinking sand. But I know that as I stand on him, he will hold me fast and see me through to the end. So I can sing that all I have is Christ and that Jesus is my life. And then be able to walk out into this world and go, my worth is not in what I own. But it's in the costly wounds of love at the cross. So I rejoice in my Redeemer greatest treasure, the wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. Let's pray. Lord, we are so amazed at your grace. And I pray now that you would direct our hearts longing for gain, longing for treasure, God, that today you would alter and shift our hearts to set our hope on Christ, to know him, to feel his nearness, God, to know that you've promised us to never leave us or forsake us, to know that you are a shepherd and we won't want or need anything. That even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, because we will, we won't fear, not because of how strong we are, not because of the things that we may own, but our contentment in the valley of the shadow of death is in this, that you are with us. God, help us find that joy and that contentment in you. Help us learn that secret of being content and help us live for great gain, both now and for eternity, in Christ and in Christ alone. We pray this in his name, amen.